Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, where today we will be discussing our special report, Proxy Fights 2020, sponsored by Moro Sadali, Reeve Mark, and Vincent and Elkins, as well as taking a look at the November edition of Activist Insight Monthly. The Proxy Fights report explains how these contests have gone from being the privilege of a small group of established activist investors to a tool for all investors looking for change. Also included in the report is a look at the data suggesting that management teams are correct in routinely criticising proxy contests as unnecessary distractions and how picking the right nominees can influence the result of a contest. Joining me is Insightia Editor-in-Chief, Josh Black. So Josh, why now? It's always fun to do a thematic report. And when we do that, we usually look at activist strategies for creating value, by which I mean, you know, do they want M&A or spin-offs or balance sheet? And we never actually spend as much time on the process by which they gain influence. I think that's what was really appealing about proxy fights. You have this very cyclical form of activism where some years you get a lot of fights, some years you get very few, some years you know, activists are more successful than others. I think last year the first activist victory in a proxy fight didn't come until June. This year activists you know, were pretty successful, including at control slate elections. And there's so many components, legal and PR and solicitation, so many intricacies in the way they're fought. So we thought it would be a really good opportunity to delve into how activists prosecute these campaigns. And it also happened to be the first report we'd done since the merger of Activist Insight and Proxy Insight to form Insightia. Being able to call on both of those data sets, you know, you have the activist track record, and then you have the shareholder voting and the proxy advisor influence. That created a really good opportunity for us to do the report now. And proxy fights are notoriously expensive, time-consuming and uncertain. So why do they actually happen at all? It's a pretty good question. I think it's one that we really wanted to tackle in the report because they are the most eye-catching form of activism. And yet, when it comes down to the actual votes, it's something of a crapshoot. I think we can get that past the parental guidance sticker But there's a very narrow difference between the number of proxy contests that companies win and those that activists have won. And of course, many of them settle much earlier in the process. And that's a key reason why proxy fights are launched. They're also just 12% of all activist campaigns in the US. You know, the idea that all activists look for a public fight over board directors is not accurate. But sometimes activists and companies reach this kind of point of fundamental disagreement where there is no way to break that deadlock without a public campaign. You know, either it's a question of speed or timing or the activist fundamentally thinks the CEO is the wrong person for the job and they want to remove them. You know, in some cases, it's the case that the company is reasonably well run and the activist, you know, really fundamentally believes that it could be doing a lot better, but the company just doesn't have the incentive to settle. In other cases, you know, there's enough bad blood or governance issues that the activist just feels they will never get the change that is required to create the value that they see without using all available measures to change the composition of the board or get a mandate from shareholders. 
And were there any surprising trends found in the report? A few trends that I found interesting were this year, despite COVID-19, you saw activists seeking more board seats. You saw several control slates advanced, and those were mostly successful. So it does kind of give some credence to the idea that the worse the situation, the more demanding uh, the activist is likely to be, and they've picked their target right, the more likely they are to succeed. I think the other interesting thing was that M&A and breakup demands were the most common kind of contemporaneous demands to go alongside proxy fights. But that ebbed and flowed. You had some years like 2016, 2018, even last year, where, you know, far and away, the most common demand was for M&A. You know, other years where you saw kind of balance sheet or business strategy or sort of operational demands being more common. I mentioned that 2017 was a year of you know, operationally minded, you know, large cap campaigns. So, you know, every year brings a slightly different flavor to the types of campaigns. And the other thing is just that these campaigns keep reasserting themselves. You would think that activists and companies would both get a lot better evaluating each other's chance of success, that the better and more established activists would find a way to win without going to a proxy fight. And therefore, the only proxy fights left would be fought by newcomers or you know, activists with a bad thesis. But that's not the case. You know, there's so many new entrants to activism that really do have the skill set and you know, are able to call on advisors with the right skill set to win these fights. Every few years, companies get more confident and believe that they shouldn't be conceding to activists unnecessarily. And so you do have um, a kind of ebb and flow to whether companies and activists can settle these things or whether they go to a vote. This year has obviously been a challenging one, but how has it been different for proxy fights? Activists had to make a decision right at the beginning of proxy season whether they were to go ahead with a campaign or whether they were to withdraw. And so some of those which were more uncertain about their end prospects did withdraw. And those that didn't tended to have kind of bigger grievances. You know, in a couple of examples, there had been proxy fights or settlements the year previously, and the change hadn't been adequate in the interim. And the activists kind of came back and said, we think that the importance of new leadership now can't be overstated. The other thing was that activists had to solicit virtually, you know, they couldn't fly around the US meeting with investors, you know, they had to rely on virtual meetings in many cases. And those actually went pretty well. And so it will be interesting to see whether any of those changes are kind of incorporated into activism in the future. The report also delves into how the types of nominees can make or break a slate. The gender diversity movement and its connection with activism have been gathering pace for a number of years now. It's generally expected that companies will have a certain number of or a certain proportion of females on their boards. And activists have been criticised for not nominating very diverse slates. And that's really started to change. You know, a lot more attention is being paid to how many women are on an activist slate are the activists looking to remove women from the board? And if so, are they uh, nominating a, a similar number of female replacements? You know, we had kind of confirmation that there's an unwritten rule that you don't target a woman on the board unless you have a woman on your slate. 
And the report does find that female nominees generally are more successful than male, you know, both management and activist nominees. Then there are lots of other less visible criteria that are important in proxy contests as well. You know, independence you know, is maybe something we can measure, but then there are skill sets like M&A or crisis management that are becoming increasingly important. And I think boards are expected to cover a broader and broader amount of ground these days. And, and that has an impact on the quality of the activist nominees that have to be put forward in order to be successful. And lastly, Josh, what do you think the future holds for proxy fights? I think we'll still have plenty of them. The majority of them will be settled, but you will still get a few every year where there is so much of a gulf between the two sides that you go to a vote. And I think some institutional investors are supportive of these proxy contests going to a vote so that they have a choice between the outcomes. I think that digital marketing and, and media will become increasingly important in these proxy fights and that the activist nominees and, in fact, the incumbent board or the management nominees will be required to be much more visible in the fight. You know, I do think that proxy fights will sharpen both the articulation of a company's strategy or purpose and refine that strategy and give shareholders a voice on you know what the company is doing and i think that is good for the marketplace and leads to increased sophistication in investment strategies so i think that the future is bright for proxy fights it's bright for non-traditional activists that want to use this tool even without casting themselves as an activist um, without getting a name as a hostile investor i think they can be run at a pretty high level but, you know, we will also see some some real bad blood because they're very consequential. They have very sharp outcomes, you know, and they can mean gainful employment or not for a lot of people. So they will continue to be an important part of activism. Did you know you can sign up for a free trial of Activist Insight Vulnerability on our website? Activist Insight Vulnerability includes weekly analysis produced by our team of expert journalists on companies that may be targeted by activists and allows you to screen companies by key balance sheet, cash flow and income statement ratios, as well as votes for and against management. Request a 30-minute demo now of all of our products, which also include Activist Insight Online, Activist Insight Governance and Activist Insight Shorts by visiting our website. Joining me now is Jason Booth to discuss the November edition of Activist Insight Monthly. This month's issue looks at activism in Japan, Afisimo Capital, Senator Investments Group's campaign at CoreLogic, Viceroy Research on Grenka, and how the Securities and Exchange Commission's proposal to raise the 13F disclosures threshold to 3.5 billion has unleashed a deluge of complaints. So Jason, Japan has risen to become the second busiest activist market in the world after the US. So why did government interference in Toshiba's recent proxy fight make people just so uncomfortable? Well, one of the reasons is that Japan has or had a history of being very negative towards shelter activists. If you go back 10 years or more, there was a wide consensus among the media, the government and the public that activists, especially foreign activists, were overstepping their boundaries by seeking changes at companies. 
Since then, there's been a lot of gains for activists. Uh, under former Prime Minister Abe, measures were put in place to make Japan more shareholder-friendly. And as a result, you've seen an increase in the number of activists. And Japanese companies have been a lot more uh, willing to work with them and make positive changes. So to see Japan government step in with Toshiba, albeit uh, behind the scenes, would have made people uncomfortable that could be returning to behavior of the past, especially given that Prime Minister Abe resigned earlier this year for health reasons. And what does this then mean for Efisimo, given that it is Toshiba's biggest shareholder? Efisimo, obviously at Toshiba, it's going to make it think twice about what it does going forward. But also on a wider scale, one of the reasons that people have put forth for government intervention is that Toshiba is seen to be in a so-called sensitive industry of national importance. Japan has recently put in laws to limit foreign ownership of strategic companies. This is aimed at largely at China, possibly trying to take over Japanese companies, but there's been concerns that it could be used against shareholder activists in general. Efisimo, besides Toshiba, owns stakes in several large companies that one might think could be seen as strategic, as do uh, many other shareholder activists. So there's just a concern that if the Japanese government does start limiting activist investment in some of these big companies, it could limit firms like Efisimo and others who are looking to invest in them. Elsewhere in the magazine, we talk about pawn shops, and we don't often think of pawn shops being publicly traded multinational business. So why should activists be interested in a company like First Cash? First Cash is the largest chain of pawn shops in the Americas, with more than 2,000 outlets. And as the name suggests, they generate a lot of cash, they do a lot of business. Things like that tend to be attractive to an activist. Now, they haven't been doing so well recently, and they have been hurt by the coronavirus more than many of its competitors. For one, they haven't really invested in technology like some of the other pawn shop chains. So if anybody wants to do business at First Cash Outlet, they have to visit the stores, whether it's to trade one of their a personal item for a loan or if they wanted to go and, and buy uh, something at a pawn shop, because as you know, pawn shops can take the items that people pawn, or at least take loan on and deposit their personal item. If they don't repay the loan, those items go on sale at the pawn shop. So you know, the fact that people can't come in and browse and buy things that they have on sale there has limited the returns for the company First Cash, which has made it a lot more vulnerable to activist investors. And lastly, Jason, we know that Jay Clayton will be leaving the SEC at the end of the year. So why has his proposal to raise the 13F disclosure sparked so much opposition? Largely because it would limit visibility into what shareholder activists were investing in. By limiting the or raising the threshold to 3.5 billion from just 100 million currently, Something like 80% of all investment firms that currently disclose their holdings every quarter would no longer have to. And that would include most of the activists that we follow. And this has raised a lot of concerns, especially among companies that have already faced activism in the past, that it would make it impossible for them to identify potential activists who are investing in their shares. On a more basic level, it would limit companies' ability to reach out to their shareholders in general. It'd be harder to identify who's invested, especially smaller firms. 
Likewise, on the investment side, a lot of investors, activists included, scour the 13F disclosures in order to see who else is investing in a company as an indicator if it's a good company or not, or if you're an activist, to identify potential allies if you decided to make demands at a particular company. Finally, we'll hear again quickly from Josh about another report we released this week. Yeah, so this is our shareholder activism insight report. It's the third year that we've done this survey of activist investors commissioned by Shorty Roth and Zabel. It's also published in association with Carpi Partners. And it's a really opportune time, I think, to be looking at the views of activist investors about their industry and about the marketplace. The last time we did it was this time in 2018. And back then, you know, investors were worried about rising interest rates. We were just starting to see the first signs of ESG investing. You know, obviously, fast forward two years, we've had the COVID pandemic. So that's created a lot of dislocation in the marketplace. Share prices are still high. So activists actually think COVID will have a beneficial impact on the opportunities for activism. They also recognize that valuations are very high and the US is very crowded for activism. So it will be really interesting to see whether their thoughts about the sectors that have the most opportunity, the strategies like operational and ESG activism that they think we'll see more of, and the countries that we'll see more activism in, like the UK and France and Germany, whether that will all come to pass. Because we live in interesting times, and you know it's great to hear from the horse's mouth. You know these are serious activists who've run 400 campaigns, have hundreds of billions of dollars in assets under management, and really make the news. So highly recommend downloading the Shareholder Activism Insight from our website. That's it for today's episode. Download your free copy of the reports by visiting our website now. Remember, you don't have to be a subscriber to get our reports. However, you do need to be a subscriber to access our Activist Insight monthly magazines. If you're not already, simply email subscriptions at activistinsight.com. Plus, remember to listen to the two special panel podcast episodes we released last month alongside Command Financial. Just scroll up to find them. And if you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.